0: It's my great pleasure now to welcome uh, to our event, Professor William Nordhaus, who is the Sterling Professor of Economics at Yale University. Professor Nordhaus won the Nobel Prize in Economics in 2018 for integrating climate change into long run macroeconomic analysis. Uh, Professor Nordhaus is going to give us a presentation looking at how corporates can actually make very big changes uh, to their footprint at a very low cost. And then we're going to have a conversation about a number of things, including why it is actually very difficult to get to net zero. So now I'd like to uh, welcome to you, Professor Nordhaus. Hello again. Now we can't hear you, maybe on mute. Hello, Amanda. Hello, Hello, Professor Nordhaus. There you are, welcome.
1: There I am, unmuted and ready to go.
0: (laughs) Good to see you. So I'll hand over to you um, uh, for your presentation, then we'll come back for some questions.
1: Great, thank you very much. Uh, Well, what I want to talk about today is uh, what is known as ESG. All of you know about that. Environmental, social, corporate uh, governance. And um, it really follows pretty closely on what Dr Duffy said. It'll, It'll point out some of the dilemmas that when you that you encounter when you get into ESG. So ESG, um, uh, each of those three are central measures of the societal impact of companies. Uh, we are Many of you are financial managers, but you have to look at your companies. And so this is one way of thinking that is now developed in economics. Uh, and I'd, I'd like to, it's a kind of report on from the front lines of analysis of uh, ESG analysis and economics. Now, the basic idea in uh, ESG is that corporations are more than just uh, money-making machines, produce steel, produce cars, fight tooth and claw to ensure profits for their owners. Uh, they're increasingly viewed as members of a society with legal, uh, economic, and even ethical obligations. Um, and the ESG involves going beyond the law, beyond this, to this, beyond the letter of the law. And uh, it involves voluntary actions in which uh, companies or investors uh, ensure the compliance of the spirit of the law with ethical standards and with uh, business norms. Now, um, ESG recognizes, and here we're coming to the economic part of this, that profits, which are the central goal of business, or returns, which are the central goals of financial uh, companies are sometimes misleading compasses and need corrections. And this is, this is where I'd like to begin my uh, major um, talk. So this, this uh, I don't know, if you'd like to put up the first slide, I'll just say a word about where this came from. Um, so can you go back to the f- prior slide of the book, the book cover? Okay, so when I recently, I'm just about to publish a book called The Spirit of Green, which talks about many of the ideas uh, that were covered by Dr. Duffy in his talk and that I'll talk about today. And one of the ones that I spent most time on was on ESG, because I found it when I got into it extremely confusing and quite muddled. Uh, there are so many different ideas, there's so many different concepts, there's so many different metrics, and so on. Um, but then, as we began to look at it, and I've looked at the work of others like Jeff Heal of Columbia, uh, it became clear that the, the most fruitful way to view ESG, particularly the S and the G, the E and the S of this, is to view ESG as focusing on externalities, as a way of identifying appropriate activities. and. Uh, this is something that it's in one of the chapters of the book uh, and what I'll talk about today. So if we go to the next slide, uh, let me say a little word about what externalities are. So as I say, the economics of ESG Highlands highlights firm externalities. So what are those? Uh, many of you know them, but if you don't, uh, externalities is a technical term from economics, but it's spilled over uh, into other areas. And it's these are activities with harmful spillovers. And the ones where say the firm does not pay for the activity, and the harmed are not compensated. So this is a kind of standard example from economics. Pollution is an example of that CO2 emissions, uh, harmful products, and so on. Uh, And I think the key to think of ESG is to think of how companies should deal with these externalities, and particularly the most important externalities that they generate. So that would really be the first point. And here you you just take uh, take the example of your carbon footprint. That's an externality. We think it's a harmful externality. In countries like the United States, companies are not paying for that. There is no price on carbon. Some areas there are, but not in the United States. In fact, not in 80% of the world. Uh, So that's an externality that a company needs to deal with, particularly if it is important. Now, the second point, um, if we can come to the next slide um, is that, um, and this is where this talk is going to really spring off Dr. Duffy's presentation, because many of the ideas in ESG are ones where there's no trade-off between profits or shareholder value and your activities. Uh, a well-managed corporation may undertake some ESG activities because it's moving from short-termism to long-termism, because it has its long-term interests of its, of its shareholders and even its stakeholders in mind. So that, that's, you could say it's ESG, but it's a win-win ESG. It's one where there's no conflict uh, on the part of the goals of the firm. Uh, so, for example, some things benefit society, society wins. And benefits the firm's profits because it's good management. And I think probably the best example is long-term thinking, because short-termism, where you focus on this this month's stock price or this afternoon stock price and these quarterly earnings, uh, and that's well known as a way not not a way to run a firm economically and profitably and well for the long run. And, and many of the examples that Dr. Duffy gave were ones where a firm would. Be, would would just be engaging good management, would just take into account uh, a practice uh, that would benefit the firm itself, uh, and that's good management, but that's win-win. So the real issue involves activities that are either win-neutral, win for society, neutral for the firm, or win-lose. And these are ones that benefit society, but do not benefit the firm. And so you can think of the carbon footprint reducing your carbon footprint, as an example of that, it's not gonna have benefit the firm to cut its carbon footprint. In most cases, I won't say in all cases, and at least once you've gotten to the point where you've done as much as you can economically, it's not gonna benefit the firm. It might actually reduce profits a little bit, a lot or whatever, but it's gonna help society. And so I think the key issue that firms face, and I think it's it's a, a useful way for firms And for financial entities well to think about this is how far you go in this, how far you go away from the win-win into the win-lose. Now, there's one theorem if you like from economics and mathematics that is a really interesting theorem and I'd like to to reply it here. I don't think it's been uh, applied quite as much as it should be and this is the no regrets principle. And the no regrets principle Uh, says, I'll give you its its formal statement, that uh, in the case of unregulated externalities, so that would be something like carbon dioxide emissions in the United States today, small reductions in our footprint have low or very small impacts on ourselves, but can have substantial impacts on others. So this is a very special situation. This is not a situation where you're buying... Uh, you're buying food grain or you're buying cement. This is a case where you're engaging in an activity which is one that's unregulated and harmful to entities outside your firm. So again, in this, in this, this is the case where you, a small reduction in your footprint, your externality footprint will have very small impacts on your own profits but very large reductions in the harms to others. So that's the no regrets principle. I also call it the, the, um, uh, the, the hilltop principle, which I'll show you in a minute. So if I can go to the next slide, this will illustrate the point. Um, okay, so here um, here is an example of um, a little graph that shows on the horizontal axis, your ESG activities. These could be uh, from left to right, this could be reducing your carbon footprint. It could be reducing your water pollution. Many, many things would go into that. Uh, and on the vertical axis is your shareholder value. So you could be the manager in the firm, or you could own the firm. You could you could manage a manager who owns the firm. Uh, and now you can see different points here. Um, point A is one where you do no ESG activity. So if you move to point B, which is undertakes some prudent recycling, there could be a number of things. Notice that your shareholder value goes up as your ESG uh, improves. So that's a win-win situation. And those are some of the things Dr. Duffy and other people talk about are just—they're just good management. And you're, you're—you're—you're just not—you're not being a prudent manager if you don't undertake those. So then you get to B, which is the top. You can't really see it very well, but if you look closely, is the top of the hill. So this, we're not the hilltop. So when you're at the top of the hill, and you move into flat hill, curved hill if you move a little bit you're not going to lose much altitude and so in this graph if because you're maximizing your profits with respect to this activity if you move a little bit and therefore at the top of the hill the profit curve is flat uh, if you move a little bit to increase your esg activities then you won't increase your profits you decrease your profits very much and this is the this is a no regrets principle you can undertake modest activities in ESG or other areas to reduce your externality at very low cost. Now, you can't just go forever because that that curve sometimes begins at some point begins to bend down very sharply. And if you go to D, then you might be in trouble and you might uh, uh, get have a shareholder revolt. But if you move from B to C, you can you can have social benefits and at the same time uh, not really have any major impact on your profit. I'll just give you one example of that, which is an intuitive one, but if you think of this is a household one or another a corporate one, but it applies in the corporation. If you think, oh'm I'm, I'm optimally warm in my house when it's 70 degrees. so I set the thermostat at 70 degrees. Well, now somebody tells me about my footprint, could be any kind of footprint, carbon footprint, energy footprint, whatever. And I say, well well, and they say, why don't you just turn your, your thermostat, say in the winter down one degree. So from 70 to 69 degrees. Well, I won't even feel the difference of this one degree, but it actually will make a substantial difference in my energy output and my energy use. So that's a very simple example, home example of this principle. All right. Um, so let me just wrap up then. Again, I want to say there are really two key points uh, the econ- modern economic theory of ESG. Uh, first is the analytical core of modern ESG thinking is to manage a firm's externalities. These are harmful effects. They're not sufficiently regulated by law. And I think much of the confusion regarding ESG can be clarified if we focus on the externality aspects of ESG. And secondly, there's this no regrets principle, which is to remember that we can make substantial contributions to reducing our footprint at very, very low cost. And it's it's uh, it's not a big it's not like a, a charitable contribution where it's a dollar for dollar reduction in the ESG type of activities with externalities. It's a small it's a win for society at small cost to the firms. Okay, I think I'll wrap it up there. And that that's a, a, kind of a new view of uh, ESG from the economic corner of the world. Uh, and if you want to read more about it in May, you can read about it in a spirit of green. Okay. Thank you, Amanda.
0: All right. Thank you very much, Professor, for for outlining that. I I want to have a a little bit more of a conversation around this no regrets policy and, and, you know, bearing in mind that, again, that our audience is predominantly asset owners but also some fund managers. So from their point of view, as owners of companies, what does does this mean for them? How do they get the company to move from B to C and not too far down the curve to D, you know, at that sweep? spot, if you like, from moving from, from B to C, what, what's the best activity for them to, how, how should they best engage with companies and push them um, to, to reduce their, their footprint at, as you say, this low or no cost?
1: Yeah, well, this principle applies, that's a really great question. This, this principle applies to financial analysis and financial management as well. So in choosing a portfolio, say, a portfolio of companies or a portfolio of managers, the same principle applies. You could actually say, I would like to choose a portfolio of companies that has a smaller carbon footprint or a smaller, it doesn't have to be carbon, any kind of footprint that you would like. And you can do that. If you're do if you optimizing your portfolio when using standard techniques, you can do that with minimal loss of, of revenue, loss of yield. So that's that's almost a fundamental theorem of portfolio analysis. Uh, So that's one way to do it. You can actually optimize your portfolio, reducing your portfolio's footprint at very low cost. The second thing to do, which is more complicated, is to intervene with your managers and tell them to do it in their own activities. But but, um, financial managers actually have two ways of doing this. One is in designing their own portfolio and designing it in a way that lowers the impact, but can do that by re optimizing among different uh, firms or industries to keep roughly the same uh, risk corrected yield, or they can do it by a see through to the management. Now, we can talk a little bit more about that, but the first one is, is very, very easy to do. The second one is much more complicated because it involves um, getting involved in the management of the, of the companies you own.
0: I want to get. Um... I guess, political for, for a moment. Professor, you're an advocate for a price on carbon and you've said in the past to our audiences um, that you would recommend a price at around $40 a tonne, um, which would be ramping up over time. We now have a, a new president in your country where perhaps a price on carbon is potentially more likely than it has been in the past. Can you tell us your insight as to whether or not you think President Biden will put a, a price on carbon?
1: Well, I think there's um, there are two ways of doing that. One is you can use price of carbon in your federal activities, such as in your regulatory activities, such as when you have automobile emissions or appliance emissions or utility emissions uh, regulation. And I would be extremely surprised if something like uh, forty or fifty dollar ton of carbon was put was not in those. In- Regulations. So in terms of the activities of the federal government, I would, I would think we will see that. That started in an earlier era, uh, and I think that will continue. In terms of a price, uh, an economy-wide price on carbon, that basically requires legislation. I think at this point, the, the uh, voting is too close between the, the, the pros and the cons. So I would think it's unlikely to see it uh, in the near future. Could be done, but it, it won't be done this year. But it, it could be done if it's high enough priority. But it requires um, getting through these very thin majorities in the House and Senate.
0: Uh, so carbon pricing is important, but um, you know we've we've seen in the last year the impact that innovation can have. You know, as the vaccine developed very very quickly. And I'm interested in your view on uh, innovation and, and new technology and what that means in the climate. Uh, sector and and, and perhaps the role that that can play, linked to a question that's come from our audience from uh, Deb Clark, who's the Global Head of Investment Research at uh, the consultant Mercer, and she asks, could we find a way to have our own actions measured and therefore changed in terms of impact, for example, an app to remind us when we have travelled enough for the year or the impact we make turning down the heating, as you described? So I guess that's an, some example of, of innovation, but I'd love you to kind of respond to that and also sort of just generally the role of innovation and technology in tackling this problem.
1: Well, um, that's a really great question. Um, it is, it's is—it's very clear. If you just stand back and look at the long-term landscape of uh, in climate change, it's very clear that we're going to need radical and deep, changes in the technological structure of our societies to make the, ra- the deep reductions that we hope to make. For example, to get anywhere near net zero emissions by the middle of the century. We don't have either the infrastructure or the technologies at this point in place to do that. So those will require not just a lot of um. New plants and equipment, but those require also more importantly new technologies so that's absolutely clear, for example, if we we're going to have to replace virtually all of our electricity infrastructure. Another easy example is airplane 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 airline services Uh, we don't we don't have a technology now to fly around the world uh, without using fossil fuels, we aren't even close to it, Um, so those are examples and why we need. uh, Better technologies, and that means, of course, we need the research and development to do those. I would like to add that one of the things that um, has been very striking over the last year um, is the way the public-private partnership with the development of the COVID vaccine, how impressive that has been. Uh, if you, Some of you may remember back a year ago when we were talking about developing vaccines. And people were saying, well, we've never developed one in less than four years. HIV still doesn't have a vaccine. So there was a, I would say, sort of realistic pessimism about it. But what we did was we developed, first place, we put high priority on it. We invested public funds to develop new vaccines all around the world, not in the United States, but all around the world. And then we used some new tools to to incentivize research and development in vaccines in this case, such as the pre-purchase agreements. Those are used in the military, but are very seldom used in the civilian part of the the sector. So what we've seen is really, I think it's just an extraordinary uh, development in the technological field. And as I look back on that over the last year, can we take some of the insights there and apply them to climate change, to the necessity to develop new technologies, new low carbon technologies, I think the answer is yes. And I think that should be one of our high priorities in the years to come.
0: Yes, I agree with you. And, and Professor, you know, if you were, uh, obviously you can't give advice necessarily, but if you were a, an asset owner, a pension fund, would you be investing more in renewables and more into venture capital and new technologies um, and that the market is gonna move in that direction?
1: I, you know, I, I don't, I, I'm glad to give advice, but I want to I stress a, a slightly different point um, because my advice as an investor is not not that valuable. But I, I do want to talk about the landscape for innovation. And here's the other half of it. And this is really underappreciated. To make this a, a, what I call a friendly environment for low carbon green innovation, we need to fix the price structure. The reason we don't have green innovations and inventions is because it has no payoff. If you were to develop a new technology that would produce a low co- electricity or fluof or liquid fuels at low cost, low carbon cost, low fuel. So at, I'm sorry, we developed it that was a low carbon fuel but it was a little more expensive than existing fuels, it wouldn't, it wouldn't get anywhere. It wouldn't. It isn't commercialized because people wouldn't buy it. So you're not going to do the research and development on it. The only way we're going to get the profit-oriented firms to do the kind of research and development that's necessary is to have a price structure that reflects the social priorities. And that means getting up the price of carbon. So the getting the price of carbon is up for obvious reason that people won't use high carbon products, but a much more subtle and in a way much more important reason is it's a way to incentivize private actors and their owners, the financial industry them, to do the right kind of R&D and to do it in a way that is appropriate for their kinds of activities. I don't know what to tell people what to do. I, I suspect many of your people attending this conference don't really know what to tell the battery people to do. The battery people know what to do, and if they have incentive to do it, they will do the right research and development.
0: Absolutely. Now, uh, Professor, uh, the session following this one is uh, discussing the, the plans for uh, some investors so far who have, who have laid out um, the path to get to net zero. You mentioned getting to net zero by the middle of this century is, is a very, very difficult task. Can you elaborate a little bit more on that before we go into the next session?
1: I, I don't want to be uh, too pessimistic, but uh, if I can just look at some of their, there are a dozen or so models, very, very detailed, not my own, but very, very detailed models of the energy transition. And they, they're finding it extremely difficult to get down to net zero by the middle of the century. They, they, just the amount, the number of new technologies that would be needed, the amount of new capital, the amount you'd have to scrap uh, to get there, the fact that we have 75% of our electrical generation technology now on fossil fuels. So there are many, many, many steps, and this is just a start, not just fossil fuels, but our buildings, our airlines, our roads, our our airports, uh, our gas stations. So there's so much we would need to do. It's just gonna take a longer time. Now, for individuals, we might be able to do that because we can buy offsets, but society can't buy offsets societies will have as a whole will have i think it's um i think it's just very very difficult not impossible but very very difficult to do we can but well, we ought to start the problem we haven't even started yet but we ought to start right away so
0: professor you mentioned at the outset um, your new book which is coming out um, soon the spirit of green and in that it look you look at how to improve the effectiveness and the equity of society, which is uh, quite a, a, a bold ambition. You've mentioned a couple of um, chapters already that, uh, that in that book. Do you want to give us just a very brief overview of, of what it is you're trying to achieve and what we can expect from that book?
1: So, so the book is, um, the subtitle is Reflections on Collisions and Contagions in Modern Society. And it was started before the... Great contagion that we're in, but the great contagion itself is is a good illustration. It's it's these effects that we're talking about are ones because we live in a densely populated, highly globalized world where people can fly with viruses around the world in uh, twelve hours and infect other companies. But also, it's not not just infections, but it's collisions and it's it's the climate change and it's the environmental. Um, Issues that we're dealing with, and so what this book tries to do is first stand back, as I did in my talk, and ask about what the principles are. And often the principles involve this concept of externality. The extern, I mean, we we have an externality when we infect somebody in a, in a uh, contagious with a contagious disease just as much as we do with climate change. So it's a way of reflecting on that. And when I got started, I started on this maybe five years ago. And when I started thinking about this, it, it, I just found so many areas. I just had to, I had to stop, say, stop, stop, stop. You're done, you're done. But everywhere from architecture to chemistry, to thinking about what is, what is the principle of sustainability, individual ethics, corporate ethics, financial ethics, and of course the one that the, uh, the grandparent of them all, which is climate change. Uh, So this is a kind of unified look at how this what I call the spirit of green is the spirit of thinking about how to contain these these externalities in ways that preserve our lifestyle, uh, but also reduce the worst effects. I just came back to the question that was asked of uh, Dr. Duffy last time, Uh, I very much agree with him that we it's not just a political issue we can contain it's like the Hilltop theorem or the no regrets principle, we can contain these issues, if we do it efficiently and effectively at relatively low cost, we don't have to go back to the Stone Age to contain these things, or even even the uh, even the Iron Age. Um, we have ways to do this, but we have to we have to focus on them as externalities, deal with the best instruments to to cure or to curb them. Um, and it's like the way to curb a uh, if you take a pandemic is a beautiful example. You don't curb a pandemic by everybody just holding up in their house and never going out and never seeing anybody, well, that'll do it. But a much better way is to develop vaccines. Uh, and that's, so vaccines, we wanna vaccinate ourselves against some of these issues. That's that's the approach I'd like to take.
0: Well, Professor, you've been uh, studying this and, and working on, on models related to climate change and, and economics for many decades. And congratulations again on uh, being recognized with the Nobel Prize. I look forward to your book coming out and thank you again very much for um, addressing our audience here today.
1: It's great to see you. Thank you all very much. Goodbye.
0: Thank you, Professor Nordhaus.